thinkers. Welcome to this week's Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Wu. And I'm really excited to have this week's guest. Her name is Dr. Brianna Stubbs. And she's world-class in a couple different disciplines. And I think that's very rare for just people in general, right? You have people that are experts in one specific field. I think we're lucky to have someone that's experts in, in two very distinct fields. So she just recently finished her PhD in ketone metabolism at Oxford University. And her side job has been a professional rower on the Great Britain rowing team, where she recently won the 2016 World Championship for the four-person lightweight crew. So I think she's got a ton of interesting information and content for us today, um, both in terms of her science and research into the ketone world, as well as being a top performing athlete. So happy to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. So one thing that I think is very interesting is that at Nutribox and in, in our biohacking community, we got into this world of exogenous ketones, ketosis through fasting, right? So like a, a big part of our mission has been, let's enhance one of the core aspects of humanity, our cognition. And obviously nootropics is one interesting lever, but two has been fasting. And a big part of fasting is well, lowering all calories, especially carbohydrates, which means that we have to elevate ketones or ketosis, get our, get our bodies to use fats instead of carbohydrates as our energy source. And that's an interesting uh, biological phenomenon. I'm curious to hear your perspective and how you got into the space of ketones. It was all very much kind of by accident. And um, it's kind of a funny story because I was an undergraduate student in my first year at university, needed a little bit of beer money, and I saw an advert for a study. And at the time I was rowing with the Oxford University crew. The study was looking at rowing performance with or without ketone drinks. And I mean, at that point, the biology kind of passed me by a little bit. And I was just like, ah, oh, 50 pounds to go and do rowing machine training. That's pretty much what I'd be doing anyway. Yeah. Like, I'll go and get involved. Oxford seems like quite a cool place to be doing a research study. You know, these scientists are probably pretty cool. But I didn't think too much about so like the detail. 18, 19 at yeah, this time. Yeah, I was like basically still a kid right. and just really enjoying being at university. Like, it was a really immersive experience living away from home. Um, I was having a great time. And if only I'd known like where it was like doing doing this study was going to take me and so I signed up and I met the research team and um, it was being led by Professor Kieran Clark and Pete Cox and they're two of the most um, fantastic scientists I've ever worked with and Pete was running this study um, and he was just so passionate about um, this ketone drink that he was studying that it really got me interested in the biology then and doing the study um, they had blinded me to the drink so they made the control drink taste really foul and then the ketone drink at that stage they sort of working on it but it still was quite bitter so didn't know which drink I was having and I did these two rowing machine tests and didn't necessarily find out straight away what the outcome was but I kept in touch with Pete um, and sort of when the study was finished he shared the results with me and that was that the ketone drink was seemed like it was a really useful thing for athletic performance and improving performance and so that really like caught my imagination and um keeping in touch with him gave me opportunities to kind of get involved in the research as an right. undergraduate student. So I did my undergraduate dissertation working with Pete and Kieran looking at the ketone ester. And um, then I decided that I was going to um, pause my studies for a little bit to focus on my own rowing career, which had kind of been like ticking on quite nicely while I was at university. So while I was going to focus on the rowing, I wanted to get a job to help me pay the rent and like feed myself. 
Um, although as a lightweight rower, I didn't need to eat much. And it was, it sort of, it gave me another really interesting angle on like ketosis because, because I was calorie restricted quite a lot of the time, my body was almost definitely going into ketosis more often than a normal athlete. So, um, anyway, that, that aside, I worked for them, for them for one year as a research assistant. And that was when I really started diving a lot deeper into to the biology of ketosis. And I was lucky because my undergraduate had been pre-med. So I had quite a good grasp of like the human system. And also as an athlete, the, you know, if you're switched on, you can get more out of yourself by understanding your body. So I was coming at it from a place of um, being, having a really inquisitive mind and right. like a real hunger to like find out about how everything that I was changing about my training and about my diet and, you know, potentially supplementing with something like ketones, how was that gonna affect my performance kind of as a student athlete because I was juggling studying with the rowing. So it was working with them as a research assistant and focusing on the rowing. And while I was doing that, the opportunity kind of arose to apply for a PhD and that's when I took it. And then three or three and a half years later, kind of here I am having won the world championships and also completed a PhD. And I remember there's been so many times along the way where I never thought that I would get here. And it's a fantastic <laughs> kind of feeling to be able to look back and see, see what I've achieved. Yeah, no, I, I think just to give like context to the listeners out there, I mean, being a world champion level athlete or just a world-class person in any domain is a full-time job. And then doing a PhD on top of that is another full-time job. So like, I'd love to, you know, and later in the conversation, talk about how you manage your routines and get so much done in such a short period of time. Um, but I think just going back to uh, like the, the ketone itself. Um, yeah, I think you come from a very interesting background because I think in most of nutrition and most of biohacking, you either have people that are purely on the academic sense or purely like, you know, on the experimental, like I'm tinkering and, and feeling myself. And I think that on, on that spectrum, as an, as an athlete, like you almost treat your body as a machine, like purely in, in what we talk about a lot, like treating your body as a system. Inputs into that system are very predictive of certain outputs that you want to optimize for so if I, I think you you probably have one of the most intuitive grasps around all the possible inputs into your system um i think as well you kind of get an appreciation of the fact that what works for you might not work as well for other people right. as well and so getting this really um strong sense that you can give advice but people have to really like own their own bodies and make their own decisions about what works for them so right. what works for me might not work for someone else quite as well but being your optimal self involves taking a bit of initiative right. and like being tuned into yourself you yeah. can't just there's not necessarily like um 10 steps to success that works for every single person to yeah. get their most optimal like performance well i think that would be the holy grail that that would like, be we, we would want to help solve right yeah. like I, I think all the inputs are there. Just like we don't know how to quantify them. Just well, yet. it's it might like, be it's like, like based on your genome. It's based on like certain characteristics or certain activities you want to optimize for. Yeah. But once you have like all these puzzle pieces together, then one could theoretically yeah, be like, it's okay, gonna be like a, a like a buffet, right? And it's like, well, for you because you're like more heavily like you're an endurance athlete, you need to like really work on these areas, right. and you you're a sprinter, you really need to work on these areas, and you you're not an athlete at all, but you're you know a pro computer programmer working really really long hours, and these right. are the things that you need to to address to make right. yourself optimal. Right. But it's about having like the toolkit or the options available so that people can equip themselves. Right as they need to, to achieve their specific goals. Yeah. But the tools that each person needs are gonna be like slightly different. 100%, I think that's where 
I think biohacking as a populist movement, you know, really starts making sense because yeah. I think medical medicine and, and healthcare today is very much one size fits all. We have like our you know big insurance, big pharma. These are the processes, and we're slapping people through the system, and it, it will have to evolve into something that's much more personalized. Yeah, and, it, and that's not... a whole. I mean, that's a whole another like can of worms we can definitely dive into as well. Yeah, <laughs> um, I want to just like sort of just zoom back out, even you know. Uh, you know, back to your childhood and your upbringing. I know that you were the youngest person to cross the English Channel. Definitely the youngest woman in a rowing boat. In, in a rowing boat. Um, how you know, like, how did you decide to? You know, I think most of us growing up, you know, aren't like, hey, I want to. Like, I don't even know how to be like the yeah. best of anything or the first of anything. Like, what, what's your story? Like, how did you always just like sort of go for these high, 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 high achievements? I'd really like to credit my dad for this. He actually took part in the first ever ocean rowing race from Tenerife to Barbados across the Atlantic rowing race. And he saw a newspaper article that was like, Che Blythe seeks men to take part in a challenge that rivals Everest. And he's always had this real like passion for p- pushing himself and for doing extreme sports and for for life just in general and right. that I was brought up in like an atmosphere that really like fostered that so as I was growing up my dad was planning firstly this row which happened in 97 so I was about six and then after that he was really bitten by the bug and it t- it takes quite a long time to plan these products but he a project sorry but he um actually did made two more attempts on the North Atlantic Ocean uh between me being sort of six and me being 13. So across the entire North Atlantic Ocean. Yeah so he so rode he made like it all the way across 3, the thousand mile. thousands of miles okay. but also just even to get on the start line fundraising to build the boat and <laughs> equip the boat and all of the training and finding the team um they weren't supported at all so they're in the boat in the middle of the ocean like by themselves and so when you're a kid and your dad's like in the middle of the ocean miles from anywhere and doing this sort of like extreme endeavor right it just really makes you feel like anything's possible and he he always used to use this quote by t lawrence that was like um the dreamers of the day are dangerous men because they act out their dreams with open eyes and make it possible and he had that on a lot of his sort of um stuff that he was sending out to sponsors and i was just really i was surrounded by that as i was growing up and my parents um neither of them went to university no no one in my family had been to university until i did and so it's not like I was coming from a, like a high achieving academic background parents, you know, medical doctors or lawyers or anything right. like that. But they just always encouraged me. They, and I know it sounds cheesy to always tell your kids that they can do anything, but, and it they makes, didn't, and they just, true, you know, like, like I think, they, so yeah. I remember my dad was, he was planning his, one of his sort of other rows and I went into his study and I was like, what can I do? What can I do? Can I, can I like do something with you? Can I go and row the channel? And then I think that like planted a seed with him. And then it just sort of the, came together he obviously had the boat and the team and they were doing that sort of training and it it worked but I remember I did my first ever like competitive sport race aged about I think I was seven and my dad would take me training um we lived by the beach and by some cliffs and there was zigzag path up the cliffs and he used to make me run up this path until I was sick and he used to love it he used to have this little tiny little girl and he'd be like there shouting at me to go faster and he just he just always encouraged me and never he taught me that there were no boundaries and to pu- and to push myself as well right. and yeah he's he was a fantastic like figure <laughs> in my life and I'm no really that's fascinating I like mean that. I think a lot of us I mean especially in America you grow up playing some sort of sport so like I was in AYSO soccer played basketball I you know started focusing on tennis and played tennis you know fairly competitively up until you know playing high school we were like the number two ranked team in uh in, in tennis in California, which is a pretty competitive state, but like I never was like, hey, I plan 
to be like a professional tennis player like was there a point where i was like oh i'm not i'm like not just good at this i could like really be a world champion at that was there like a turning point when you're like young or is it just like i'm this is fun i'm pretty good at it yeah I like, what was the turning point? The, so the actual turning point, like what you were just describing, actually happened really only um, when I decided to take time off my medical degree because oh, wow. I was really, really driven academically as well. You know, applying to Oxford, I got a scholarship to go. So I was uh, to a sixth form school where I could do the rowing as well. So I'd always been um, academic and sport, like kind of running both tracks parallel. Yeah. And actually, I never really, I never really, I don't think I ever really won anything until I won the under 23 world championships. You know, I was always like second or third or fourth, you know, I was always, and a lot of people who, when I was like 15, 16, who were beating me at rowing, dropped out. And I just like, Why kept, on going, kept on going, um, a lot of people just don't, they, didn't, they don't there's... have the staying power. I mean, sport is really hard. Yeah. And especially when you're growing up as a kid, there are loads of other things you want to do. And I think everyone reaches that point at some point in their life. And I guess now I'm at a point where I'm thinking about my athletic career and whether or not I carry on or not. And But that's this is the first time that I've ever right. contemplated not doing sport. And some people just get there earlier. They're kind of like, right. well, I want to be a student, go out and enjoy, you know, meeting people and socializing or traveling. You know, there's just so much to do. Right. And it's like what you decide to pour yourself into. And I, whenever I speak to like groups of kids, I always say that I was never the best until I was the best like very recently. And it was more just because I kept at it and kept at it and kept at yeah. it. But, you know, it doesn't work out for everyone. Right. And it has worked out for me, but maybe not even to the extent that it's worked out for other people and that I've never been to the Olympic Games. Right. I'd like to think I'd have been good enough to compete at the Olympic Games, but, but I've never had that opportunity. And right. so it's there's only a small percentage of fairy stories. And it just, you know, depends whether you get enough out of doing sport to make it worth your while and I think that rowing has always given me like a massive self sense of self-confidence and self-belief and like you have to be really meticulous and it's always taught me so much and like really formed me into the person that I am today right. and so I think um the more you persist with it as a kid the more you get out of it long term but I see why what the, what the distractions are and it doesn't mean that you're any less of a person if you decide to pursue something else right. because you know you have to be brave to make that decision as right. well rather than just carrying on because because yeah, no, I, I think particular. I think that's like one thing that I realized growing up was that there's a lot of smart people, a lot of like de- like reasonably capable people, but I think the people who make it across are like people who like are persistent, yeah. right? It's like people t- took themselves out of, out of the competition, yeah. even though they're, they're yeah. like they could have had potential, but yeah. like if you're like the last person standing, well, you win, yeah. right? It's just, yeah, exactly. So, so it was interesting. So like it was put like, in the hours and put in the graft and keep backing yourself because right. that's where you get to, you know, I I won bronze medals all the way through sort of like at the, in the, at the national level, right. all the way through sort of like 15, 16, right. 17. And um, I won a silver medal at the junior, I managed to get selected for the junior world championships and that was my first international representation aged 18. But what had happened the year before that was that I'd been the like, this, the next ranked person from being on the team. And I remember, I think I was like 17 at the time and you go and you do like a, a week long selection camp and then you do loads and loads of racing. It's physically very tough. And when you're a 17 year old girl, like emotionally right. really tough as well. And I remember the coaches all went into the meeting and they came out and my coach told me that they, that I wasn't going and, but I was the next ranked person and yeah. like and in fact they'd given the spot for the the spare spot so it wasn't even the spare they'd given the spare spot to someone who hadn't even been at this selection weekend yeah because they thought that she could at that stage i couldn't do sweep rowing and sculling so what i was only a two awed athlete not a one awed athlete as well so they'd given it to someone who could do both and i can see why they did that 
but I was gutted because I thought that was my spot. Right. And I remember crying the whole way home and next year coming back and being like, no, I'm, I'm in this now. And so Which I think it's like good response, right? Yeah. I think a lot of people are like, fuck it, I'm done. Yeah, like, so it's your response, over. response to failure as well. Right. Is really so you're just important. like, nah, like, screw yeah. this. I'm going to come back and like show, prove you yeah. wrong. So you have like, a chip on the shoulder. Perhaps as well, like going back to when people decide whether or not they're going to carry on. I think, so I went to a camp that was run by Dame Kelly Holmes. And I don't know whether American listeners would have heard of her, but she was a famous British athlete who won gold medals at the, I think it was the Beijing Olympics in both the 800 meter track mm. and field and the 1500 meter track and field in the same year and so I went to a camp that she was running and one thing that she said that really stuck with me was never ever stop when you're on a low because she had a lot of problems with injury and things like that and she was like if you're on a high and you want to stop then it's the right time but I think quite a lot of people make the mistake of like getting kicked down and then they're like oh this is way too hard I'm going to stop and so I think you're much more in much more powerful position to make that decision like objectively if you're successful like if you're successful and you want to move on and do another challenge, right. then you know that's a much more powerful place to make that decision. That's from. actually interesting because it kind of reminds me of a of a quote that I or a story from a like from a from a like so I did Y Combinator, which is like a startup accelerator thing that's you know relatively prestigious uh, for my first company, Glassmap, and then Mark Zuckerberg was a speaker there, and he had like an interesting quote that I think is like very similar where it's like, you're never as like, like in every cycle of any company or any endeavor, there's like, you get blown up as like, you're the best company ever, or like you're a failure. You're like, you're the worst company ever. Like, and he was saying that you just like, don't believe like how good people say you are and don't like, and you're never as bad as people say you are. Yeah. So it's like, I think it's, it's, it's like that decision-making process, right? Like you don't want to be making decisions when you're like, your ego is huge yeah. on, on, on one hand, but you don't also want to be making like, decisions when, when you're like low you're, you're and... really low when people are saying like oh you know facebook is like the worst company ever yeah. like it's just like some way to pick up you know girlfriends or boyfriends yeah. on, on, you know in your college network yeah um so i think all the best things go through like iterations where people have struggled right. and you know but then equally things that might seem really successful right now that might like not necessarily be the way it turns out and so i kind of relating that back to my own story all the people pretty much all of the people that were winning gold medals when i was 15 and you know the national championships was like the end of the world you know oh no i only won you know bronze this person's won gold they're the next big thing and actually now they never made anything of their own career and i'm a world champion so you know it's powered through yeah exactly so how did you decide because i know that you know a lot of student athletes are much more athletes than students. Depends like, what to, sport you're in. Right, like, it? honest, to be honest, right? Like, I think that's like, been, like, just a controversy in, like, American yeah. collegiate athletes. And, it's, and it sounds like you were not just, like, a student athlete, emphasis on athlete. You were legitimately, like, yeah. you know, at, at a world-class PhD program that you just recently completed. So, like, how were you able to balance that? How Why did you decide to pull triggers on both because i think that's like you know it's like almost abiding more yeah. than a typical yeah. hard-working person can choose like not just being ambitious on one thing like yeah. you can be really ambitious on two things at the same time i think um i probably didn't know exactly what i was letting myself in for before i was kind of in and like just struggling to keep my head above right. the water there was a point when i'd been doing the program um is in the british rowing program and the um, phd program for about three or four months and i remember um, I was sick from doing the training and knackered from doing the studying as well. And I remember sitting in my car 
in tears on the phone to my parents just being like, I can't do this. And I had a meeting with my supervisor, Kieran Clark, and she was like, you should stop doing your PhD and like, because you're really good at the rowing and you should do the rowing and you know, you can't carry on doing both. And there was a sort of like crisis point quite early on in. And I was just like, this is just not gonna work. But what I had to do then was take a step back and work out a way to make both fit because the the typical schedule for a PhD student was just not compatible with the typical schedule for an athlete. So I had to find, for the the rowing team, so I had to find a way to make both of them work. And actually, I think the solution that I came up with in terms of just my week schedule was actually, was really optimal for me because it gave me headspace when I wasn't rowing to, you know, studying really helped me switch off from rowing. And that was just, for me, you know, it was a good outlet. Both of them worked from one another. When one of them was a radiator, the other one was a sink, and one of them, they kind of complemented each other. It was only crap when both of them weren't going very well, but right. that luckily that didn't happen very often. At least when you're sick and you can't train, you could kind of do the work and right. read papers and things right. like that. So they did complement one another in the end, but there were, it wasn't a match made in heaven. Um, and I ended up doing the two almost by a happy accident. You know, I taking the time off medical school uh, because I didn't want to go and do my clinical training because I knew that I would be away on placements, which would mean that it was quite difficult for me to, to do Can't the training. To train, yeah. yeah, so I thought thought that giving me, doing a PhD, a research degree, would give me a little bit more flexibility with my time. And, and that was the case right. because um, luckily I had a really fantastic supervisor, Kieran. She gave me a lot of um, freedom with my schedule. And once I built that trust with her, and once, she, once you start delivering for people, they back you and I think in that initial three months where it was difficult as well I was trying to create an impression of myself for her and for all of my other research colleagues in the lab that I was that I was the real deal that I was going to work hard and I wasn't just doing it just as a free pass to do the rowing and there were some comments that people made like you know you're here to do a PhD at Oxford not to you know row and I took all of that very personally and I was just desperately trying to convince them that I was that I was committed and then on the other hand I had the rowing people being like oh, you're a part-timer, you're not like... But then when you start delivering the results at trials and you consistently, and I was hitting my PBs and people can't argue with results. Right. So you have to find a way of getting results. Right. You know, the solution for you, it might not be the way that either party would want, but so long as you produce results... You're doing it. Yeah, like, so long as you produce results, right. people are happy. And I had conversations with like the head of the British rowing team and they were like, you know, up until now your results your results are good, but we think they'd be better if you weren't doing your PhD. And I'd argue with them, not for their face, but I would, would argue that actually why would it be better you can as an athlete you develop at the speed that you're going to develop you can do everything you can to right. accelerate it but i've been there's doing a lot this. of downtime to recover right yeah and it's like okay if i'm not going to be working out i might as well be reading like science yeah. papers yeah and there have been parts where like doing that sort of thing and doing my phd has been like physically not the best right. recovery because i'd be getting up super super early and fitting in sessions before i'd go and do experiments and there, i mean there was even one ridiculous time where i was running a um a, an experiment on a rat heart and you had to stand and sort of supervise this while all the science was going on and I was just standing and I was like I'm late for training now I was meant to go to the gym and um, I was part of my session that I was meant to do was like 20 minutes of body weight squats and so I was like well I'm just standing here in the lab like I'm gonna get like a bench and I'll stand here and I'll do my body weight squats here and everyone else in the lab was like what are you doing I was like like, well training yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, just standing there my heart was beating and I was doing squats You know, like just got to find like creative ways to use your time. Like that's a bit of an extreme example. I didn't do that like routinely, but um, I would routinely be in the lab um, 
on the exercise bike and then finish half an hour before I had research participants coming in and like just go get grab a shower grab something to eat like boom straight onto the science you know it's just about efficiencies and uh, yeah I, mean, I think that's what like that's that's awesome I mean that, I think that's what we're all about like we have all the same amount of time yeah and if you're just like you know and clearly some people do more out of their time than others right let's all sort of like help promote people you know different techniques and, and tips to help people get the most out of their life right yeah. like i think that's like just a noble mission that i think we all can agree to like let's help people be better versions of themselves and i think like the longer that i initially when i started doing that i had mountains and mountains of energy for it a lot a lot more right. and as it was sort of as i've got a little bit older and been doing it for longer i had i've had to like protect a bit more downtime for myself right. to like recharge emotionally and, and mentally to right. like be able to do the stuff that i do physically and so now like something that i've started to build into my routine is like meditation 10 minutes a day mm. and i struggle to sometimes i struggle to find time for that but it is only 10 minutes and if you protect that time then you Beginning do it the and, day end of the day uh whenever i can if i'm honest okay. like i'm not i'm not in a good enough routine with it yet but i think it's something that's really trying to be mindful about protecting that time and doing right. that is something that's added to my output during the day and i never used to have to make do you, time are to you recover. like pretty rigorous about it like alarm clock like I wish I could be, but okay. I'm, I'm not that disciplined with that yet. Okay. But I've been, I'm, I'm, I get like, I try and do it in the morning most of the time. Yeah. 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 I've been trying to get that in at the end of the day for myself, but yeah, it's hard to, it's hard if yeah. you're just busy. It's like, I, I think if, if hard to be consistent, it, you know, I guess if I took the attitude that I take into my athletic performance, like I need to do it, I'm going to do it. Then, right. then of course I would do it. I just, I need to be a bit, stri- it, I need to be, I need to be a bit stricter with myself. Yeah. I need to be a bit stricter with yeah, myself. What other, you know, tips of the trade would you, would you have to recommend or, or, or have stories about? I mean, I think, um, clearly like you figured out like some sort of routine that allows you to be super productive. Yeah. Like any other things besides meditation? I think getting enough sleep. Um, was really really important for me and um, again like I was never perfect but you it was just about being aware so it would be like okay oh my god I'm really tired during the day at the moment hmm my bedtime started to creep back from being like 10 and now it's more like like 10 45 yeah, what was your typical protocol like like yeah I- so I, the arm would go off at about half past five um, I needed a little bit of time to kind of like get up and going in the morning and I found that was like I'm quite productive in the morning so sometimes if I had a lot of work on or if I was organizing a research study I'd get up and use a little bit I'd, I'd have to I'd have about 45 minutes before I'd have to leave in the morning so while my breakfast was kind of making or as I was making breakfast I'd kind of just get a look in my mind straight what I needed to do that day and if there okay. were any emails that needed to be sent or any any like little bits of admin that I could do in that little bit of time I would do that then um then I would drive to the British training center which is about a 45 minute drive and that journey could be like I, I used that for whatever I wanted so I'd either like listen to music if I wanted to de-stress or if I was quite like keyed up about stuff I'd use that time to like listen to podcasts or right. you know actually that time rather than being this like time that was um wasted became quite a, like a valuable source of whatever I was kind of looking for yeah Yeah. either either like kind of relaxation or content right Right. um then we would do I would always I think something that became really important in my like athletic routine was making time to stretch and um just get your body like fully prepped ready for the workout so that you're when you go into it you're getting the most out of it and also helping to avoid injury um that was something that I didn't do as much when I was younger and now I it's a really important part of my like pre-workout routine um and 
it kind of evolved over time. So I used to kind of just do, you know, like stand there and sort of hold your quad a little bit and like maybe sort of do some lunges. But um, I used I really got into practicing yoga and sort of go, doing okay. more like. Um, so this is the beginning of the day still. This is like seven. This is oh yeah, we're about we're probably at sort of like seven fifteen okay. now. So I'll be at the ch- training center and I'll do sort of like fifteen minutes, twenty minutes of okay. stretching before we then go out and we go rowing. The rowing takes about an hour and a half, and so it can be. It's important to have clear goals for the session and kind of clear expectations of what you're looking to achieve and how you're going to measure those goals. And right. because it's such a long workout it's hard to kind of keep your concentration all of the time. But if you beat yourself up about the fact that you're not concentrating all of the time, then that's really counterproductive as well. So it kind of goes back to talking about mindfulness. So like, okay, I'm aware that now I'm thinking about work. Okay, what's the technical um, goal that I'm working on this session or what's the speed goal? I'm now going to focus back in on that. Like mindful and, training. I think, yeah, mind, yeah, so you get much more of, out of training if you're engaged with it. Right. Um, but it's, it is also recognizing that you're not going to be engaged all the time over like a hundred minute session right. where you're just kind of going round and round in circles um, backwards, right. you know, like rowing. Um, it's quite a meditative kind of hypnotic sport because you're right. just doing the rowing stroke over and over again. Um, and when you kind of get into the flow state with it, it just kind of takes off. But then contrastingly, if it's awful conditions or freezing cold or really windy, it can just be like pushing a boulder up a hill and it's just you're just like why am i here and it's just trying it's to only 8 30 <laughs> yeah well you're almost finished by the time it's okay. 8 30 so you start 7 30 and we get it we finish between like 9 and 9 15 right. and then after that it's really important to refuel properly after the session so um i know yeah, you talked a little yeah. yeah so i know you talked a little bit about the ketogenic diet but rowing right. training is like quite a mixture of high intensity and um, low in, lower intensity stuff as well as a lot of strength training.